we're at the cottage and I am a voracious reader when there's no other distraction. If there's anything else around me, like I, I'm a creative technologist. So I have lots of Arduino and raspberry pies and stuff sitting around me at my desk, which means I obviously can't read because I just start playing with electronics <laughs> instead. But if I'm at the cottage, I can read. And I had three books. I read two of them. And then your book was the last one. And I got one third of the way through and my wife decided we were going to go home. <laughs> so it's been sitting on my bedside table, but because I go to bed later than my wife, I can't turn the bedside lamp on. And, mm-hmm. you know, anyways, just a whole lot of excuses. <laughs> well, we're not, I'm not going to ask you about contents, but I am curious about, so, okay, wait, hold on. Maybe what I'll get you to do is I'll get you to introduce yourself. Sure. You're listening to Kent Selvis, a podcast about creativity, creatives, and their process. With your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambar. Yeah, um, my name is Christian Cantrell, uh, and uh, I guess I sort of have two professions, uh, two jobs. Um, one is a uh, prototyper for Adobe. Uh, I run design prototyping. Um, uh, I think my title is... Um, Director of User Experience Development or something like that. Uh, I run design prototyping. That's usually what I tell people. Um, and my second career is uh, a science fiction writer. Um, I've sort of dabbling a little bit in thrillers as well. Uh, I, I, um, I think that one of the things I do that's kind of unique is, is combine uh, various genres, but the one that they all have in common is science fiction. Right. You know, and, and in starting to read Scorpion, one of the things I was really interested in, and I wonder if this sort of carries through all your writing is, uh, sorry, shoot, I should be like, oh, well, nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you too. One of the things I'm always curious about when it, when it comes to science fiction is authors will sort of gloss over the technology part. They'll just be like, yeah, this is what we, we got here. And this is the name of that thing that got us here but they don't really delve into the science behind it. And then there's authors that really like the tech part of it. And I could be entirely wrong, but, and, and maybe it doesn't carry through with your other books, but in Scorpion, what I really enjoyed was you, you, there was a bit of a nitty gritty tech aspect to how you described things. And do you find that that's sort of how you are in general? Yeah, definitely. I don't like to, write about any kind of technology that I don't feel like I have a reasonable grasp of um, Mm -hmm. because I want the technology to feel very real and relatable. Um, Relatable is more important than real. Um, So it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, exist. um, And I don't have to, you know, understand every aspect of it, but I, I, I sort of, I like to feel like there's a, you know, I'm usually writing about, almost always writing about the future. Uh, often what, you know, we sort of call five minutes in the future, right? So, you know, it, we're usually not on other planets or something like that. It's usually, mm-hmm. you know, some um, indeterminate amount of time in the future. And I, um, it's important for me to um, to create worlds that readers can feel connected to. And so, right. that, you know, so I do like to extrapolate, uh, you know, I don't just sort of like to skip a bunch of steps and just say, oh yeah, this thing just sort of exists. Um, yeah. You know, I like I like to figure out how we got there, um, and I like to make sure that um, that I provide enough explanation 
that the reader feels that connection. Uh, you know, in my my first novel, Containment, that was you know a hard science fiction novel, um, and there's a lot of science and technology in it, which people some people really really like. In fact, that that seems to be the thing that people mostly like about it is that it feels like it's very accessible. Right. Um, I've kind of moved away from that, um, and in Scorpion, you know, the the technology should feel relatable. Uh, readers should understand how we got from where we are today to where they are in that story. But um, but I also cut a lot of the description. You know, so I usually go way overboard, and then I usually <laughs> uh, reel it in because you know I don't want I, I want people to focus on the 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 characters, the plot, um, but I also want to provide just enough. Uh, background for the technology to make sure that readers feel anchored. Right. Well, and, and, and that's the interesting thing. So, you know, when I, when I started to read Scorpion, one of the things that it, that whole five minutes in the future concept, the, the idea that there's just, there's just a little bit more technology than we have currently, but it feels relatable to what we do have. So it could feel like an evolution of the things we have. Do you find that that's a, a, a an actual, like, connection to what you do at adobe for instance i mean you guys do you must do future casting quite often like where is the technology going to go yeah it's um somewhat you know a reflection of what i do at adobe and what i do at adobe is also somewhat a reflection of who and what i am Mm -hmm. um it's hard to say you know which came first but um you know i've always in in my software career i've always uh, I, I was sort of a natural born prototyper because I'm, I'm always interested in what could be not what is. Right. Um, and, um, but I'm also very interested in what really could be not, <laughs> not what maybe could be at some point in the future, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's really, you know, my writing and my, my work at Adobe, um, they, they all, they're all kind of five minutes in the future, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, I don't like to think, you know, 10 years ahead. I don't like to think about, I mean, I do, sure. I mean, and it's not that I, it's not that I, you know, don't enjoy that or something, but I also, I'm very interested in, um, I'm very interested in this concept professionally that I call execution, which is, you know, my, my theory in the software world is that uh, ideas are a dime a dozen. Uh, everybody has plenty of good ideas. Um, you can spend an evening with the right people, you know, over drinks or over dinner, uh, and have a really stimulating conversation. You can come up with a dozen ideas that could change the world, right? You really mm-hmm. could. Um, but how many of those ideas will anybody actually be able to execute on? Uh, so when I think about the technologies that interest me the most, when I am future casting, when I'm thinking about the direction um, that technology can go in, that that you know, frankly, you know, creativity or humanity can go in, you know, I'm I'm really interested in the things that I. Um, that I feel as though I can achieve or that, that, you know, in my writing that, that people could achieve, um, not things that I tend to stay away from the things that are, um, that start to border a little bit on magic. Um, we don't really know how we got there. Um, and, you know, and I always, I reserve the right to write about that at any moment because I, I do think that (laughs) stuff's cool. I like that science fiction. I, I, and I watch and I read that science fiction for sure. But for me, I, I'm really interested in what hasn't been done, but what can be done. I'm, I'm really interested in the potential of technology and um, and therefore the potential that it can bring out uh, in the people who use that technology. Well, it, 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 I find it funny. My, my co-host and I, Stefan, have talked about this ad nauseum, the fact that 
we say like ideas are a dime a dozen. And if you surround yourself with like-minded people, everybody's got a bunch of ideas, but I've also sat with people that really just don't have ideas. And they're always surprised by, I still remember a friend of mine going, where did that come from? I'm like my brain, you know, because from their point of view, they do their job and they go home and then they do their job and they go home. But from my point of view, I do my job. And then when it, when that's done, I sit and I do a whole bunch of other things, you know, like the podcast is a good example, you know, and, and, and I, I think that we, I think creative people tend to ignore the fact that they really are unique in, in, in some ways you surround yourself by a lot of people like yourself, you start to think you're not unique at all. Right. That's true. That's true. Uh, which, you know, um, I, I don't know. I mean, isn't isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you're surrounded by people who um, I, I love to surround myself with people who surprise me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, when I'm hiring, I try to hire people who are better than I am. There, there are people who will who will be intimidated by people who are better than they are or have more experience or who are more talented or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, especially in the pro professional world, because, you know, there's this sort of hierarchy that, that many people like to maintain. Um, that sounds crazy to me. I want people on my team uh, who are better than I am, who can do who can do one or more things better than I can do them. That's why yeah. I want them on my team. Uh, and I want to learn from them in the same way that I want to be able to maybe mentor them in some areas. Uh, and we all become um, more well-rounded. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, if you're feeling as though you are the most creative person in the room, you might want to find another room uh, <laughs> to, to hang out in. It's um, a paraphrase from Rounders, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, you know, it, and I think I think that, you know, that that's that's not always possible. It's difficult to do depending on what you do for a living or, or whatever it is. But the, you know, I the reason I landed where I did at Adobe is because, you know, I had jobs where I was just expected to deliver uh, some functionality, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, um, and I don't, la I didn't last in that job. I mean, this was, you know, I don't know, 20, 22, 23, 24 years ago. Um, right. and I just, I lasted six months in that job before I was off to the next thing and off to the next thing. And, you know, and I, and then I finally found a place at Adobe where, you know, creativity and software really come together, uh, and where, you know, it's a very fast paced, uh, environment, we're always innovating. Um, and that's, you know, and then I found myself, you know, in this sort of prototyping role and building a prototyping team. Um, and, you know, the more you sort of find those kinds of people and surround yourself with those kinds of people, maybe the more normalized it becomes and the more normal it feels. So maybe I do take it for granted, mm -hmm. but it's a good thing. Um, I wouldn't want to feel like I stood out. I want to feel like, if anything, people are challenging me. Yeah. Have you ever put yourself in the position where you just reeled yourself back the second you you went, you know, it would be amazing. And then it was like, you just went, no, 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 no. I don't want, I don't, I can't, I can't justify that story for the long term. Uh, interesting. Um, I, I think that um, I imagine that that's happened to me probably many, many times um, on sort of a microcosmic level where, um, you know, I am, uh, sort of, you know, extrapolating, trying, trying to get somewhere. Um, but I, I, instead of sort of s starting at, at some point, um, some distant point, and then trying to reverse engineer 
you know, my way back. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of, I often find myself going the other way. Right. So I, I, um, instead of sort of landing somewhere too far away and saying, no, 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 I, this is just not going to work. This is insane. Um, which I'm sure I've done. I mean, I, I have, I have dozens and dozens and dozens of ideas, uh, that, you know, that I've thought about, um, and well, I'll, 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 I'll sort of sidetrack for one moment and get back to the point I was <laughs> I making. I love sidetrack, so that's okay. When I, <laughs> and who knows, I might even forget uh, what the what the question was. But um, but when I when I have an idea, I'll often, you know, kind of, you know, some people are sort of trying to jot it down and capture it and make sure, you know, mm -hmm. but I'll, I often won't do that. I will just sort of let it stay in my brain. And, um, and if I'm still thinking about it days or weeks later mm -hmm. then i think to myself you know this might actually be something yeah um because um you know i like i said i have documents with all these ideas i'll only develop a, a small fraction of them and the ones that i will develop are the ones that i still think about that still come to me so so to, to, to get back to your your original question which i do remember i think um <laughs> you know yeah i'm sure i do i'm sure i have these ideas all the time but they're probably there's this process of evolution i think right that happens in my mind um and i for better or for worse i mean maybe maybe it's a mistake maybe i should jot them all down but i think a lot of the ideas that I don't think are viable end up evaporating before I really start spending time on them. I, I it's funny. I am I'm ex I'm very similar. Like I'm a writer only in so far as I like writing stuff, <laughs> but but I'm not a writer in that I'm a, a published guy. But I have the exact same thing. If there's something that's been dogging me for six months and I, it keeps sort of popping into my head every few weeks or every couple of months, I'll just be like, oh yeah, there was that thing. That's when I'll really consider writing it out because mm -hmm. it will have in over the course of me forgetting and then having it come back, it will have developed itself in my subconscious to the point where I see a viable story there. I, I mean, I self-published a, a vampire story and I remember talking to Stefan about it. I remember saying like, this has been in my head for easily a year and a half. And, I, and it all came down to just one core, core idea which was if you killed a vampire, what happens in my, in my world, they become human again. Mm. So you have to dispose of a body as opposed to like they puff into ash and right. So like, <laughs> I was like that, like the core concept, I just had this, what if a vampire just became human again? Like, Oh, Oh shoot. Like if you were like a vampire killer, you'd all of a sudden be a murderer because mm. they would have a body on their hands. So that was the core concept. And I left it alone. And came back to it six months later, left it alone and came back to it six months later, left it alone and talked to Stefan about it. And I was like, I'm going to write that one. You know, that one, <laughs> to me, that's like a whole thing. So like, I totally, I totally gel with that idea of like letting something percolate. And as long as it keeps coming back into your head, it's probably worth writing down. It must happen to you with other things too, right? I mean, I assume we can we can talk about other things than than just yep. writing. We can talk talk about technology probably, and sure, uh, you know, or or nonfiction articles. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I like to, I write a fair bit of nonfiction too, mm -hmm. uh, and um, you know, I have a lot of articles linked on my site that I've written, and those are also. Uh, concepts that I can't get away from, you know, maybe even more so with nonfiction than fiction, because um, with nonfiction, I'm confronted with the, uh, with the, the concepts and the topics uh, usually regularly. So the kinds of things that I write about are, um, you know, I, I write a lot of design articles. Um, I mean, it's, it's always an intersection between technology and design. I don't even, mm -hmm. I don't even necessarily 
distinguish between the two. But um, but it, it'll usually be something that I'm confronted with frequently, and I can't get away from it. Yeah. And it gets to the point where I just have to sit down and write something about it. And um, and stories are the same way. Fiction is the same way. Um, you know, although it's usually not something that I'm confronted with necessarily on a daily basis, but something that I'm very interested in. That when I'm daydreaming, I go back to and sort of build on, and then I begin to realize. Um, you know, this, this is, this is really something. Yeah. So Scorpion actually came from a, a story called the Epic Index, which I wrote um, a long time ago. And uh, I mean, I probably wrote it like, uh, I don't know, t- 2000, I don't know, 2010, 2011, something like that, probably 2011. Okay. And, um, and occasionally I would go back and revisit it and it would get optioned here and there by various people, various people would be interested in it. And it's this idea that was, that just stayed alive for a decade. Uh, and right. then I finally had the opportunity to expand it into a novel. And, you know, that that's something that, you know, usually I don't, you know, ruminate for, for 10 years or so, but th- that's a story that, that was, I sort of lived with for, for years before I finally sat down and, um, and really answered the fundamental question that everybody asked, which is, you know, at the end of the story, what happens next? It, was, it ended with a cliffhanger. It ended, uh, the okay. original story ended with the end of part two in the novel and everybody wanted to know what happens next. And I was finally able to tell that story. So the, the stories that you can't get out of your head, whether it's, or the ideas, whether it's a, uh, an application to write, whether it's a nonfiction article to write, whether it's a story, you know, those are the ones that, um, you know, my advice to people would be, uh, if you have an idea, don't sit down and do it right away. I, I, my advice would be live with it for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things the next day I wake up and I think, you know, that's stupid. I'm really glad I didn't spend time on that. Um, or, you know what, that's not really a thing. I was misunderstanding that. Yeah. You know, I'm, well, you can gnaw a bad idea to the bone or to the nub, you know, like it's not something that sometimes, sometimes it'll come into your head and, and I mean, it'll come into my, something will come into my head and I'll be like, oh yeah. And then I'll write four sentences and if I can't in those four sentences truly distill it to what the core concept is, I have since learned to let that go. My there used to be a time when I would write paragraphs afterwards, just trying to justify what the core concept was. And that, you know, there really is no bigger waste of time than than nurturing a bad idea. <laughs> Well, you know, it, you're right about that. And, you know, I've learned a lot about writing and about product development, about prototyping. Uh, if, you know, it's through uh, this iterative process that that all of those things have in common, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, it's, it's also true that um, sometimes you have to find the, the good idea, right? Um, and so, you know, sometimes... Um, it's a matter of iterating on it until you find it. Um, sometimes you iterate uh, and then and you and you're sort of disproving something, right? So yeah. in my job, um, if if we go through a series of studies, a series of prototypes, a series of research studies or longitudinal studies, and if we at the end of the day disprove something, that's a victory. That's a win. It doesn't feel yeah. like it, right? Because you're not you're not rallying around something and you're not building something and then shipping it and you're not associating revenue with it. And so it doesn't feel like a win, but you stopped yourself from building the wrong thing. Uh, you've uh, increased the knowledge that you have. You've, you've uh, honed your intuition around the technology, around the product, around the opportunity, around the customer, the, you know, all of those things. So, um, and the same can be true for writing and for stories too. Right. Uh, the key uh, with writing, I think, and just like, just like with software is, is that you don't want to overinvest until you know you have a signal there, 
right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want to spend two, three years building something only to realize that the market doesn't want it. You want to spend three weeks prototyping something um, and then seeing if you can find that signal and then build on that. Yeah. And the same, you know, I, I often will write short stories before I write novels and sh- share the stories with people. Uh, you know, usually like my agent or my manager or, you know, friends or whatever. And, and if I, you know, if, if they're excited about it, then I think, okay, let's see what more I can do with this. Um, but if they sort of say, you know what, I don't think this can go any further. I think, you know, uh, you know, maybe it stays a short story or maybe, uh, it gets set aside. Yeah. Well, and then, and, and that's funny because you actually then need to really trust the people you're sharing those stories with that they're not the word sycophantic comes to mind, but like people that are just going <laughs> to say like, Oh, everything you're doing is amazing. You know, like you need people that are willing to go. Yeah. This is a complete thought. You don't need to go really any, f-. And, and and that that's the best kind of trust you can possibly engender within your community. It's like, these are people that I trust to give me an honest conclusion as to, you know, the worth of this, this thing. And I mean, there really is nothing wrong with short stories. And, you know, there are lots of anthologies of short stories around and you could just shove it into one of those. I think that's fine, but, but it is, it is, it it does speak quite highly of the, the relationships you've cultivated that you can give that to people and trust that they will give you an honest response. Yeah. I think what you want to do with feedback is that you, you want that feedback to show you something you didn't see before. Mm. If it isn't showing you something you didn't see before or something that you still don't see, then you don't have to necessarily incorporate the feedback. So what I mean by that is that like, you, you don't want to surround yourself with people who are going to give you the answer. Because ultimately, you have to come up with the answer. You have to make the decision yourself, mm-hmm. whether this is a product, whether it's a story, no matter what it is. Um, there are plenty of success stories uh, that that um, can be traced back to um, a lot of discouraging feedback, yeah. right? But but somebody stuck with it. Somebody, you know. So I, when I think about the feedback that I get, I'm not looking for the answer. I'm not looking for my manager or for my agent or for my wife or for... Uh, my friends or for, you know, other readers to, to, um, you know, give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. I mean, they do that. Sure. Yeah. But, but I'm not going to sort of add that up and look at the score and make a decision. I'm, I'm what I'm looking for is like, well, what haven't I seen? What did I, what didn't I notice? And, right. uh, and if they can show me something I didn't see, um, whether that's encouragement or whether it's discouragement, um, you know, maybe you get a bunch of discouragement that isn't actually, uh, indicating that it's a bad idea and that you should steer clear of it, but that you just missed something. And it could be that discouragement could actually be an opportunity. And you could say, oh, wait a second, you know, I, I, I conveyed this incorrectly or I wasn't able, you know, um, or, you know, now it's time to pivot or whatever it is. So I would, you know, I'd encourage people, any, any listeners here who, who are going out there and getting feedback um, you know, don't just sort of, um, you know, tally up the votes and make your decision. Um, yeah. Look, look for information that you missed. And at the end of the day, though, y- you have to make that decision. And even if it's um, even if it might not be consistent uh, with the feedback that you got. Well, and, and that's interesting in, in that um, we interviewed uh, another author, uh, Damien Boys, who's written quite a bit of world building stuff. And he, he talked about being part of writers groups and like, you know, these writers groups give each other work to read and say, what do you think of this and take their feedback. And he said, it's fantastic for him to uh, get that feedback versus like handing it off to someone who's not a writer who really wouldn't be able to react, who would be reacting to the story, but not to why something may or may not work. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you actually have a number of writer friends that you 
work with in that in that regard, or do you sort of see yourself as a solo lobo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. Um, I'm a little bit of an isolationist, but I'm starting to change that. Um, mm. I'm starting to change that, so I'm I'm starting to. Uh, to develop more relationships with with writers, um, you know, relationships that I that I value a lot, and I'm starting to um, to be more open to the idea of sharing ideas and work early earlier. I'm not going to mm. say early earlier uh, because the way I used to be is, um, you know, I used to uh, you know just sort of go off and write whatever I wanted, no matter how long it took. Uh, without any consideration whatsoever uh, as to what anybody thought. And, um, and, I, and I don't think, I think I've, I, I don't know that I did myself any favors by doing that. Say, and that book was called Never Published. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I've been, I've been fairly lucky in that um, I, I've actually never written a book that wasn't published, but that right. was really, really lucky. Uh, in retrospect, I look back on that and think, um, Boy, that was a, that was a, pr- a pretty big mistake, and I don't want to make that bet um, over and over again in my life because eventually I will uh, write a book that nobody wants. You know, it, I was thinking about the fact you were saying, you know, that you write about stuff that's happening now, and that that becomes the nonfiction stuff you're writing for publications. And I was thinking, like, my reaction is that I, when I write for my work and and for experience design and experiential in, in general for the company I work for, I think of that as like a, a real-time reaction, right? So like whatever's happening in the real world in real time is how would I how would I change an experience so that it becomes something that someone would want to do? Yeah. Somebody said something about a VR experience. And I was like, oh, no one's going to want to put a, are you kidding me? Like put a headset on and let it touch their skin and Mm-mm, no. Yeah. <laughs> what about even, an even AR pre, experience? Pre-pandemic, I feel like uh, you know, I'm a little bit of a, it's true. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, so I feel like the world is kind of catching up to me a little bit. So um, <laughs> I, I welcome it. I love VR, by the way, um, mm-hmm. and I have uh, I don't know I don't know if you can see it, but I have, I have plenty of plenty of base stations around me here. I have my my whole office is centered around how I can have the best VR experience. So I love it, but obviously it's my own headset. Yeah. Um, the very first time I used VR was a was a public headset though um and it was it took a it was difficult for me to do but i, I went to go see interstellar at the uh udvar hazy uh museum which is the air and space annex which is not far from where i live outside of dc okay and um they had uh so we we went to go see interstellar in imax and then uh there was um, i guess it was oculus had a, uh, an exhibit outside um where you could first start playing with these headsets. And I never used VR. I mean, this was many, many years ago, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so intensely curious about this experience that I said, you know, screw it. I don't you care. You set aside your reluctance. I, I, I have to do this. I, I have to see what this is like. And I put the headset on and I was so blown away that I went, went home and ordered uh, the what was called the, the DK1, which was developer kit. Um, for for the Oculus, um, the next week I built a computer that would. I didn't have a computer that would be able that could drive right, it, so yeah. I built a computer that would drive <laughs> it. And then I then I had the DK two, and then a new computer, and all of these things. Um, and I I really I really like the experience. But um, but I you know you're 
you're right, though, when you think about user experience. Um, and, you know, the irony of all this, too, is that, uh, you know, there's not really any evidence that COVID is really spread through uh, through surfaces. It's, you know, right. almost entirely about infectious dose. Um, yeah. So, but at the same time, people, you know, you still see hand sanitizer everywhere. You still yeah. see in the doctor's office one one box for clean pens and another box for uh, for, for used pens, you know, um, everything is still sanitized and you still go to restaurants to, to your, you know, your point, you still go to restaurants and um, they may not still might not hand you a menu. You still might be scanning a QR code and looking at it on your own phone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just made people more conscious in general of um, how much we did share. Um, and even though it does not seem to be a vector for COVID, it still seems to be a vector for something and maybe we should rethink. <laughs> well, yeah. And I have, you know, I, I still remember, I don't know if you, do you know a guy named Simon Conlon by any chance? He's an English guy that he's Toronto based that uh, did a lot with FITC, does a lot with FITC. Oh yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Simon is, he's, he is very enamored with technology. And I remember Gosh, uh, when when FITC first started, he was one of the first people that talked to me about QR codes. And he was like, this is huge. QR codes are absolutely massive in Asia. You know, you scan a thing and it brings you to where you need to go to. And that's where all your menus are. And I remember like all of us going like, I will never want to do that. And now we're 20 years later. And all like I have zero reluctance with scanning a QR code. And I have seen it with lots of people, like older people. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, almost 50. So I mean, I've seen older people go like, I'll just scan it and it'll happen. And it, and they and they embrace it because they one, it's the only way to do it. You're not going to get a, a paper menu anymore. And two, that's let's just accept it. Let's accept that that's how you're going to get your food and your drink from now on. And it's, you know, that's just how it is. If only, if only those QR codes would bring you to a responsive web experience instead of a PDF that you have to <laughs> zoom in on. Uh, I know I work for Adobe. I know I'm not supposed to say this. You know, I'm, there's nothing wrong with PDF, but uh, what the next step for those QR codes would be to give people menus that render properly on small screens. 100%. Um, and then you know, you're taking the user experience to the next level, right? So... Uh, you know, you go you go into restaurants and you see you know people squinting at their menus using their flashlights to see their menus. Um, you know, I, I wear bifocals now. Uh, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be, and so people are struggling to read these menus. Phones are a fantastic solution for all of those things yep. because you can your zoom phone in. is yep. yeah you can zoom in and your phone is already going to render text at the uh, at the size that you've requested. Um, and so it's it's a great idea. And then to sort of give somebody a static PDF that doesn't do any of that stuff. Uh, again, not picking on PDF. It's not the technology. It's the um, it's user experience that that needs to be fixed. Um, but do you remember the um, do you remember the QCAT? No. The wire off the top uh, of my head. QCAT. Okay. So um, probably you know I don't remember how long ago this was. This must have been. This must have been twenty over twenty years ago. Wired uh, magazine shipped a QR code reader with their magazine. Every magazine um, got something called a QCAT. Okay. which was a, um, a, it was a, a plastic scanner in the shape of a cat. <laughs> and if, if you, uh, you know, if you, if, if you Google it, you'll see these old cute cats. I'm sure they're in a museum at this point. 
So for the record, uh, C U E cat, like a Q, yeah, right? not yeah. the letter Q. I was like Q cat. Yeah. I'll look it up. And meanwhile, Q cat. Okay, yeah. I see it. I remember yeah. this barcode reader. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so that was supposed to be the dawn of uh, QR codes, right? And um, they, uh, you know, and now, you know, up until let's say a year and a half, two years ago, that Q cat was always this joke, right? Because you know, because QR codes never you know, came to pass sort of in the US. Um, but that's not, you know, the thing about technology is that it's all about timing. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a saying in the world of, of you know, uh, investment and, and, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation that being too early is the same thing as being wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and that's true from a investment perspective. But it's not true from a technology perspective. Um, and so if you see things that are failing, it's interesting to ask yourself why they're failing. You know, mm. are they failing because they're inherently a bad idea or because they're just too early? So VR was never a bad idea. Um, VR is a fantastic idea. It just, it just the, it, the time wasn't right, uh, at least two other times before uh, you know, Palmer Lucky came along and before uh, mobile phones had, um, you know, commoditized the sensors like accelerometers right. and um, high resolution screens, right? They, they weren't economically viable. Uh, VR technology wasn't economically viable. And it was really mobile phone technology that made, uh, that made it practical to be able to buy these components and assemble them and put them in a headset and, and then we realized, oh, wait a second, you know, people had confused the technology for the idea, right? They'd said, well, it's a dumb idea. No one's going to do this. And that's not true. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a fantastic idea, but the implementations were bad. Yeah. So when I bought the first DK1 from, from Oculus, um, you know, it made me sick, right? I mean, I could only do it for maybe 15 minutes before I'd start to feel a little nauseous and get a headache right. and get really sweaty. But, but, I, but I knew, you know, I said, that's okay, because like... Eventually it'll be 20 minutes and then it'll be 30 minutes. And now I can do with the, you know, the, um, the one I have from, from Valve here, the index, uh, I can play that for two hours. So, right. you know, it's, I think it's important when, when you're interacting with technology and as a technologist to ask yourself, you know, what is it that's not working here? Is it, is it that the technology is fundamentally flawed or is it that, you know, we, we don't have the implementation, right? The timing's not right. We're not ready for it because if it's, if it's the former, let it go. If it's the latter, you can change that. That can be mm -hmm. fixed. Mm -hmm. Well, and do you find, have you, have you done any, when you do writing, have you done any situations where you've looked at, at a, a piece of technology that you've experienced where you're like, that was just before it's time. This is how I would do it now. And, and implemented that into your writing. Yeah, I have. Um, uh, there's um, there's a lot of technologies like that. A lot of mobile technologies, um, a lot of AR technologies, uh, a lot of you know collaboration um, technologies, and you know that question cuts both ways. Um, there's also things. Um, so I, I never write about some sort of technological utopia because that right. doesn't exist, right? And I've written many many articles about this as well. Um, you know, when a lot of science fiction um, is overly optimistic, not about the future, but about about the uh, the federation of technology, the collaboration, you know, the the compatibility, you know. So when you when you see a show about you know somebody uh, or a scene in a show where somebody walks into their house and you know their lights are turning on and their coffee maker's working and mm -hmm. 
Um, every, you know, everything's working just as it should in the, and they have a calendar or maybe they wake up in the morning and their mirror shows them what they're going to do for the day. And here's the weather and here, you know, you're going to be a little late here, but you know, here's the outfit you should wear. Think about, think about how many systems and devices have to be compatible for that to work. Right. right now, if there was one company that was building your mirror and your closet and, you know, your, your smart closet, your smart mirror, your smart refrigerator, your, uh, your car, uh, managing your calendar for you, managing your co- contacts for you, one company doing all of those things, then maybe half of it would work sometimes. Right. Maybe you could get, you know, and, yeah. and trust me, like, set up a smart home and then see how much of the stuff actually works. Even if you use a single vendor, even if you use Google or even if you use Apple or even if you use you know, Samsung devices or whatever. This stuff, um, this the uh, getting these things to work together in a way that is a net gain for people, as opposed to to a net loss in terms of productivity or frustration or whatever, um, is really difficult. So, so that question of yours, you know, um, absolutely, I do it both in in both contexts and in, in in contexts in which the technology is empowering, but also contexts in which um, in which it's still frustrating. And the challenges, because the reality of technology is that it's never, technology is never about what's possible. It's always about what's economically viable. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't write about what's technically possible usually. I usually, you know, you have to, I don't like to cheat. You, you have to think about how you're going to get to the point uh, where it's, you know, it's scaling, it's profitable. It's, um, you know, all the, and that's a completely different equation. I've referenced this book a number of times because I was always really impressed at when I, when I first read it, uh, it's, it's a book called earth by uh, an author named David Brin, who was written in 1990. And I, I remember reading it and going, there was, there was, I mean, it, it turned into like a trite, not the ending was just silly, but he made use of, uh, technology that, when I think about it, because it's set in the year, I'm, I have it. I have the um, Wikipedia page set open here, but it's set in the year 2038. So we're talking, you know, 16, 17 years from now. And one of the things that always stood out to me was um, the uh, older people, senior citizens became kind of the police state. Senior citizens wore glasses that streamed video all the time. And we're capturing video all the time. And there's one scene in particular where it's like a couple of teenagers standing and, and one of the teenagers is, is a main character in the book. And they looked over and there was two old, two old people sitting on a bench, a park bench, and they were staring at the, the person. And, and the, he makes mention of the fact that the author makes mention of the fact that senior citizens no longer fear youth because these things are streaming directly to whatever all the time. Right. The the police state concept that David Brin brought together was based off of, in my mind, was a precursor, uh, a, you know, a evolutionary uh, cousin to Google Glass, for instance, which was before its time good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. see it now, like AR technology now, as long as we're holding our phones, we're like, oh, yeah. But now we have spectacles. There are, you know, there are implementations of a, of a, you know, the Google Glass concept that people are accepting. And it's just because Google Glass was ahead of its time, you know, yeah, and it made I, people mad. I was, I was a fan of Google Glass. I mean, that, that's an excellent example. Uh, I think that, you know, another really good example is that, you know, Microsoft really invented the tablet. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Apple didn't invent the tablet with the iPad, but Apple did it right. And they did it at the right time, which is really, which, which is really what Apple is good at. Um, That's really where they, where they innovate. And, and that's not to take anything away from, from the way they innovate, because I think the harder of the two things to do is to do things right and make it economically viable and to execute properly and take it to market. Uh, you know, um, and find product market fit, which Apple does, you know, it does better than anyone on the planet. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, Microsoft invented the tablets. Uh, I, mean, I mean, do you remember those? Do you remember those convertible tablets? I mean, long before yeah. there were Surface Pros and I forget what they used to call them, but they, I mean, it might've been called tablet uh, or something like that. And um, I mean, this, you know, Compaq would make them uh, and, um, you know, nobody bought them. I mean, Bill Gates thought it was a fantastic idea. Um, and, and it wasn't uh, wrong. It's just nobody could afford them. Right, he like, wasn't wrong. Nobody could, nobody could afford them. The implementation was wrong. They didn't understand touch. They thought they could just put Windows on a on a on a touch screen, and people would just touch it, and it would be fine. And you know, it was really Apple that figured out. Well, actually, what if you have um, a completely new um, you know operating system? Uh, you know, I think it was Alan Kay that said, you know, people who are serious about software make their own hardware. Right. And um, you know, it's you know, Apple is is one of the Apple was one of the first companies to really realize how important it is to control the entire stack because you, that's the way you get the user experience right. And now, you know, everyone's sort of struggling to catch up to that still. Um, but you're right about Google Glass. I think uh, I liked Google Glass a lot. Um, I paid whatever it was for a pair. Um, they were crazy expensive mm-hmm. um, and they were not very good. But again, I was excited. It didn't matter. I didn't put them on and say, well, these aren't very good. I wish I didn't spend that money. Uh, I, you know, that money to me, the money that you spend on technology I think of it as every dollar is like a vote. You know, you're voting on something. You're saying, yeah. I want to support this or I don't want to support this. Uh, and I think about that when I decide the things that I want to buy. So I sometimes very intentionally buy, you know, I'm an early adopter of things. Uh, you know, folding phones, for instance, uh, mm. you know, the the first yeah, first one or two, yeah, not great. <laughs> you know, but um, <laughs> the Motorola the, the, Razor was sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the uh, the surface, you know, surface. Du- I got a surface duo back here. Okay, uh, which you know, not a fantastic, not a home run, not a home run, right? But um, but it, it, you know, I bought it, and enough other people bought it that it got us to the next version. The next version, I don't have it. I don't have it at least yet, but obviously significantly better. Uh, and I think that you know what we're going to see around mixed reality and augmented reality. Um, you know, we're going to see that um, it's easy to look back on on Google Glass and laugh, but um, but they took a chance. They they maybe they disproved more than they proved. Maybe they helped show where the opportunities are uh, by showing where the opportunities aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that that was an expensive way to do it. But I respect just about anybody who does that. You know, another good example that you will appreciate is Flash. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people like to poke fun at Flash and laugh at it, and um, and that that's actually really it's really obnoxious when people do that. It really shows that they that they don't have a it's fundamental a lack of understanding. Education. Yeah, it's a lack of yeah. understanding history. It is. It's re- <laughs> really is. It really is. Um, it's easy to poke fun at at these old technologies, um, and a lot of that was spearheaded by Steve Jobs, and that was you know partially about the technology, partially about other things. Um, and I don't argue. By the way, I don't argue with any of the disadvantages and issues with Flash. I mean, yeah. you know, between you and me and, and your audience here, uh, you know, uh, I was at Macromedia and Adobe through all of those years, and I knew when it was time to move away from Flash, and I moved right. away. 
And I never looked back. I never had a problem. I don't have a problem with stepping away from technology. I'm not someone who gets sentimental about it, but I'm also realistic about it. And the reality is that Flash really fundamentally changed our, uh, first of all, Flash is what brought video to the web. Yep. Without Flash, there would be, uh, you know, there we wouldn't be where we are with streaming video with YouTube and then <laughs> eventually with everything that that sort of came out of that technology, which you could argue is even streaming technologies like Netflix, uh, because there was a codec that could that suddenly was cross-platform that ran everywhere and that you could use, that anyone could use. Uh, that was unheard of at the time. Uh, and in and, uh, ECMAScript and ActionScript, right? Now JavaScript is, you know, the language that, you know, asynchronous programming and, you know, now we have promises and we have new new things that sort of came out of that. So you don't program asynchronously the way you used to, but all of that, everybody used to hate that technology. They thought yeah. ActionScript was ridiculous. And now it's the way, it, it's the way a, a significant percentage of the internet runs. And a, really a lot of that has to do with the investment uh, that was made around Flash. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I, I talk, I, I've, I've spoken about flash ad nauseum in my life, but one of the things that I think, and I, in speaking with, with some of the people that you would know as well, but like in talking with like Jared Ficklin and, and Brendan Dawes is, is how the use of coming up using flash when it, but when it wasn't a thing, Right, like Flash three and doing you know animations and then learning interaction and understanding interaction and you know a lot of the experience design I do now can be directly related to how I used to work with Flash and and a lot of the questions that we as as a Flash community used to answer in terms of interaction and, and in terms of experience entirely based on the fact that that didn't exist right like we were working with stuff that did not exist and creating in a vacuum. And the big advantage was, is that the Flash community was an incredibly open community that shared literally everything. So you could see someone like Robert Hodgen throw Flight 404 out there and go, this is a whole bunch of experiments. What do you think? And then win a bunch of awards because no one had made those experiments before. And the same thing with Mm -hmm. Josh Davis and um, Brendan Dawes and, and Haas Gifford and all those guys. Yeah, Eric Natsky, of course, and I, yeah. I think that I think that the advantage that we ended up with is that the history that the, the people laughing at it now it almost doesn't bother me at all because there is legitimacy in the complaints that that have come out of it, regardless sure. of whether or not it was spearheaded in, in a sort of vindictive way. But those complaints, we're living in an echo of that time. And it, and it's it's not a it's not a significantly improved echo, so like where we had a ton of experience and a ton of interaction, all the things that we were willingly going to accept as there's a reason it's on the browser. There's a reason you're looking at it on your computer. Yes, your fans are going to turn on, but what a, what an amazing <laughs> ride you're going to have. You know what I mean? Like that's the yeah that was it. Like the whole thing was what a ride you're going to have looking at this site, and now. You go to a site on your phone and you go, okay, this reminds me when Flex launched and everyone went, there's tables. We got tables. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and, mm-hmm. and it's fine. And it's fine. And that's where we're, that's where we're at for now. That's where we're at. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think the, that it's coming, you know, I think the, the, the creative technologists uh, that were able to leverage flash technology for their careers and, uh, 
and to do the kinds of things that, um, you know, Flash was the tool that they needed to, uh, to realize the kinds of visions that they had. Um, I still, to this day, look for people with that mentality. Right. Um, cause we do, I, I hope I'm not too much in the weeds here for the, for the podcast. And if so, no, it's all part of it. No, no, no. I'm, I'm very, it's, this is all part of it. I love these conversations. Okay. Well, when I'm hiring, you know, prototypers, I, you know, I run an engineering team in a design work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm looking for, uh, for engineers, you know, very good, very strong engineers who are obsessed with user experience. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of that, like, that's, the, that's where Flash, uh, you know, really um, was sort of most prominent, most comfortable. So I'm still looking for, you know, and we, we do a lot of our prototyping. We don't obviously want to use Flash anymore. Um, we never did. Um, but um, you know, we do it all with web technologies. And so we're, right. you know, we're trying to find ways to get web technologies to do the things that that Flash was very good at doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we prototype, you know, desktop interfaces. Uh, you know, we have, pro- we've done, you know, Photoshop prototypes, uh, you know, uh, Rush um, prototypes. We've done uh, Illustrator prototypes. We've done InDesign prototypes. We've done Acrobat prototypes. Um, mobile and desktop, all using web technologies, like very, very good, strong, sophisticated, deep prototypes using using this web technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we're this idea of sort of like, I think like the concept of creative technology I, is to me, you know, a lot of it, uh, it, I think, comes from this world that Flash helped create, right? It's, you know, how, how do creative technologies express themselves? I mean, there's lots of ways to do it. Flash is not one of them anymore. But um, but we need more technologies like that. Obviously, couldn't agree more. I built my entire career off of interaction and experience, and what's the best solution. And often now, when I'm when I'm building real world interactions, it's it's always about like I always say that that strategists ask the question why, and creative technologists ask the question how, and and the answer to those two things usually have to be answered together. So. You know, we I, I work with an amazing team of strategists, and and they really do concentrate very fully on the the why of things. And I I am a, a reactionary person who who asks answers that question of how would you do it, and I t- I try to think of things in a compartmental fashion so that you know if if what I'm building is an interaction, but that interaction has a result, that result can't possibly matter to the interaction. So like. I, 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 a friend of mine used to cover coworker used to call those uh, like Arduino's dumb machines because you didn't want them to do too much. You wanted them to do something simple and then communicate that as an output. And, uh, you know, a lot of what I do now is, is essentially compartmentalizing an entire experience into a set of interactions or maybe not the word um, transactions that, that have a, a, a go between that, ends with a thing that someone goes, Ooh, you know, or whatever the reaction I really want to have. And I, I think that that's part of, that's part of that history of like, how do, how do, how do I make someone, you know, it's that, it's, it's, it's the same to someone like how many clicks does it take to get somewhere? You don't want it to be too many. Like I now, mm-hmm. I now go from like, I would really like them to get to my thing in, in the least amount of clicks, you know what I mean? And, and really, mm-hmm. I mean, the least amount of interactions. There's a really great anecdote of um, the president of BlackBerry when the iPhone came out, where the guy said, keyboard, where's the keyboard? And they're like, it's on the phone. Oh, that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. No one's ever going to want that. And it was like, mm-hmm. 
And that's that's the beginning of the downfall of BlackBerry is that they just could mm-hmm. not accept that people were totally fine with typing on their like they didn't care about tactile keys. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The iPhone had uh, had no keyboard. It had when it launched, it had no enterprise support whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't have copy and paste. Uh, it cost six hundred dollars, which at the time was incredibly expensive. Exorbitant, exorbitant. Uh, yeah. And with a two-year contract, only with AT and T, it was it was the worst thing you could imagine. It was the worst deal you could imagine for a device. And um, and I waited in line to get one. Yeah. And happily, and I happily handed over my six hundred dollars. And I had to use another phone for a while. At the same time, I had to use two phones for a while. And, because of the enterprise um, aspect. Yeah, because it just yeah. you know it wasn't there yet, but um, but none of that mattered to me because you know because you can see the potential in it, right? The, the, as soon as I started using it, my friends would come over and look at it, and um, and I said, this thing just it feels like it's from the future. Yeah, uh, this is it. And yeah. you know the people, the fact that people complain that it doesn't have a keyboard doesn't matter. Another complaint that I heard often uh, was you can't use it one handed. Uh, it's never going to take off because you can't. Um, you know, ride a ride a train or a bus, and you know, hold on to uh, you know railing with with one hand, right. um, and then use it. You know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? This thing is magical. Like every everybody's going to want this. Yeah, it's like you got handed a tricorder. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just there yeah. were so many capabilities that it had right out of the box, and you're like, God damn, this is this is what it must be like to be in Star Trek. You know, I remember yeah. distinctly being so blown away by the first iPhone, and I mean. Up until mm, the, the the six or something, I remember just every time it came out, I was like, "This is baller," you know. And and then and then you know, Steve Jobs dies and blah 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 blah. And apparently, yeah. innovation is second to making screen sizes different. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. that there's innovation happening at Apple, but I, it's not visible at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, you know, it, it's not often that something like uh, you know, iPhone comes along, and um, you know, we can obviously uh, you know, sort of chart those those few um, innovations that really sort of changed the trajectory of of mm-hmm. things. I mean, you know, laptops or the internet, or one one that I think is underappreciated is GPS. I think you know, GPS we just take for granted, but that's absolutely magical technology, uh, and um, you know, the fact that we now have it in our watches and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, we, you kind of get, you know, there was a period of time when Steve Jobs was at his best and we just got used to that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first time I saw, uh, you know, what was, you know, called OS 10, which is now Mac OS, um, that, that similarly sort of felt like it came from the future. Yeah. Right. Uh, I was just sort of like, this is, you know, and it was, I, you know, I went out and bought this titanium laptop and I just couldn't believe, uh, you know, how advanced the whole thing felt. Um, but, um, you know, that's why I really like things like, like, I think VR is one of those technologies. Um, AR is going to be one of those technologies. They're not, they're not there yet. They're not as fully formed. And you can see, you know, the thing that Apple does really well is they, is they usually wait until things are fully formed. I think they, they're not as good about this as they used to be. I think like the watch, for instance, was not a fully formed thought right. uh, when it was released. Right. And you can remember it was sort of like, uh, it does you know, all of these things. So it can just sort of do all these things that people write apps. And, and now it's essentially, it's a, it's a fitness device that gives you notifications Yeah, and they found their place. And now I think it's an excellent product. Um, I don't think it was an excellent product when it launched. I don't think it was priced appropriately. I don't think it was positioned well. 
Um, and, you know, but they, they've, to their credit, they figured all of that out. Um, but, you know, we, you know, I think, I think we do see some of those technologies, but a lot of them have been released too early. Uh, and so, um, you know, when you look at something like, you know, the Oculus or the Bob Index or something, now I'm willing to go out and either build or buy a high-end computer. And I'm willing to have, you know, dedicated room to it and all that stuff. And most people aren't right. Yeah. And then it's really Oculus, you know, Facebook and Oculus that come, come around and, and they have the, the Quest and the Quest 2. And that's, that's really where the momentum is around yeah. VR now. And, you know, um, the folding phones, it's really, obviously it's mostly Samsung, there's, there's rumors that Google's going to do it, but when Apple brings the folding phone, that's when you you can be sure that you're buying something that's going to work well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think that that Apple, you know, has done a, a fantastic job of execution, getting things to market um, at a time when when the device was sort of mature enough. And when you look at the other people who have tried to tried to be first to market, who are seldom the most successful, it's easy to sort of laugh at them and poke fun at them. But I, I love those things and I give I give those people a lot of credit, those companies a lot of credit because they're the ones who are helping pave that road. Right. You know who's who's gonna make a, a fortune is the person that can um, create the filter that forces your eyes to look at the camera. Mm. Because right now we have a dissociation and, and part of the reason people are discussing zoom fatigue and and video meeting fatigue is that we cannot create eye contact with each other. If I Mm -hmm. look at the camera, you're seeing me look at you, but if you look at the camera, I only can see you look at the camera. If I look Mm -hmm. down at your screen, I'm like, I was thinking about it just a minute, like just a second ago. I was like, I could be so rich if every time the camera can see me, it makes my eyes look at it. Right. Uh, In in a realistic way. That exists. Uh, NVIDIA um, has that technology. Oh, Uh, I think I've seen it in. Can they be cartoon eyes? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Roger in, Rabbit, in, you should you should check out some of Nvidia's. Um, you know, and the, the reason this is Nvidia, right? You might not think this would be coming from a GPU uh, company, but um, you know, Nvidia is actually really at the forefront of AI and ML. Uh, and mm-hmm. so in, in computer vision, um, so uh, they do have a technology that will re-render the eyes so that they are looking, they appear to be looking at you. Uh, they can also do all kinds of, and I'm not just talking about, you know, like background replacement and crap like that. I mean, they, you know, um, and I believe that Microsoft is building this into teams. I believe that Microsoft will have the ability to also change your gaze. Uh, so all of this stuff is coming, um, and it's going to all come through uh, computer vision through AIML, right. uh, which yeah. is the uh, which is the thing I should have meant when I was talking about things like folding screens or VR uh, and AR. Um, AIML is is absolutely absolutely transformative. Um, well, we, we, you we know, barely scratched the surface. I, I, I was asked by our CEO. I work for a company called Thinking Box, and I was asked by our CEO to start a podcast for thinking box because I'm apparently the only one at the company that does a podcast. And because I've been <laughs> doing my podcast for three years, of course, I'm the person to do a podcast on behalf of the company, but I'm not a salesperson. Right. So, you know, it's been a, it's been a bit touch and go for the past month of generating the podcast, figuring out how it's going to work. And uh, you know, we, we do a, a series of sessions called Talk Nerdy to Me, where we go as a, as a panel and essentially do a panel presentation on a topic. And one of the ones that we've done is machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. And, you know, it's an hour long talk and you do it at a brand and you, and you 
discuss how it works and where it came from and where it's going. We did a project for Wrangler where you could take a picture of your butt and it would tell you if you're wearing Wranglers or not. And that was all machine learning. We just fed it thousands and thousands and thousands, you know, and if you were wearing Wranglers, you got fed a video from little Nas X because he writes in old town road, he writes, you know, I got Wrangler on my booty. So it was, you know, obviously a play on the words, but it worked great. And, and, you know, so that was, that's the episode that we just recorded. And, and it was great because I I could have the guy that built the project talk. And that was, you know, that's how I have learned the most when it comes to things that I'm not that familiar with. Machine learning and artificial intelligence are a very nebulous concept to me. I know a lot more now, thanks to needing to research it, but, you know, the execution of a good machine learning result is, you know, is that whole thing of like, am I seeing eyes? Are those eyes looking at the camera? No, I'm going to make them look at the camera based off of a bunch of, you know, I'm, I've tracked your eyes for this entire conversation. And I know when you've looked at the camera, so I can take that and, and, and put it very in a familiar way. So you don't look really weird, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in in the show notes, uh, if if you don't find links, let me know because NVIDIA has got some really fantastic uh, technology um, coming out of their labs. Uh, and again, you know, the reason it's NVIDIA is because, you know, you use GPUs both for the training um, of the models, but also for the execution too, right. um, for, for the inference. Uh, and, um, you know, so that's one of the reasons why I have, you know, this computer that I have with a, you know, 3090 and it is, is for ML type stuff. Yeah. I might play the occasional game too, but, uh, <laughs> sounds weird. but it's, um, it's, it's fantastic stuff and it's absolutely transformative of uh, something we're looking at very closely at Adobe. Um, and what I find what I find really interesting about AI and ML is that um, not only the things that I learned about it, not only the things that it can do, but also the things that I that I think that we will learn about ourselves by um, by creating uh, machine, you know, learning based processes, right? So I I don't know that I want to say thinking machines or things that are, you know, machines that are sort of conscious or or sentient. I don't want to go in that direction right now, but things that can, um, algorithms or machines or models that can infer, uh, that can, that seem to be creative, that can surprise you, that can do things. You know, what I find most interesting is that, you know, you write a traditional algorithm, it's never going to surprise you. And if it surprises you, it's because you just haven't paid attention. Like you can always figure out how it did what it did. Well, you didn't know what you were writing. Yeah. Like if if you're surprised by the result, you didn't know what you were writing when you wrote it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And and I think we're going to learn a lot about ourselves and a lot about the way our brains work, a lot about our own biases, Mm -hmm. uh, about the way we optimize, about the way systems are optimized in ways that we didn't realize. So what's, what's fascinating about, um, uh, about machine learning models is that they do what they're optimized for period. Yeah. The reality is that, um, that's also how our systems work. That's how the government works. That's how our social systems work. They work what they advantage the people they are optimized to advantage period. And, um, you know, we sort of, you know, I don't know, maybe don't see it or pretend not to see it or, or it's not, uh, you know, sort of to our advantage to, to see it perhaps. But, um, but I hope that what we learn from, um, from incorporating more machine learning into our lives and into our world 
is more about ourselves and about the way, you know, our own, um, you know, sort of optimizations, which, which give us uh, these suboptimal results, right? right? And, and we sort of scratch our heads and wonder why, you know, why are we getting these kinds of results? What's going on? The government's broken. This, you know, capitalism's broken or whatever it's, well, we built a system that produces, the system produces what is optimized for, period, yeah. every single time. It may take a period of time, you know, maybe not the first time, but over time, that's what it will do. And you can see that extremely clearly on like a microcosmic le- level with AI and ML. Um, but those same principles hold true throughout our entire world. And the more we can we can start understanding our own world through the worlds that we create, I think um, the better off we'll be. <laughs> I don't know how to react to that because it's, 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 just, it's just so right. You know, like I don't really have an additional comment to make the whole it, it works based off of how it's been built and its advantage to the people it's been set up to help. I'm going to take us back into your writing. If that's, if that's cool, like we'll, sure. we can close it out based off of that. Um, I'm curious about the, the, the concept of getting your work optioned for series or for movies. I, you know, brain is being, has, you're working on a series with Hulu Um and when I went to your IMDb, like it goes, we don't have, like, unless you've got IMDb pro, you can't read about this because it's in development. So mm. are you currently like you, you just, you finished Scorpion relatively recently and are you now you work on broadcast stuff instead? Well, uh, no. So um, that's those projects. Uh, so there's um, Kagan, which is in development with uh, TriStar. And there's uh, Brainbox, which is in development with Hulu and Fox TV Studios. Uh, those are still in development. They are moving forward. Um, they were there was um, a bit of a uh, setback with the pandemic. Okay. Um, because there, you know, production production really uh, essentially stopped. I mean, it really just stopped for uh, you know, I don't know. I'm going to say about six months, mm-hmm. and um, and then when it did restart, uh, you know, it was very different. It was much more um you know much more complex and much more expensive and you know i didn't have anything in production yet but um but that obviously slows the whole process the whole queue got slowed down uh so everything you know um sort of got set back you know at least a year right uh now so those two properties they are still in uh in development um and i'm not involved in them okay um at this point so we'll see i i hope to be i mean i was involved in so far as you know, I wrote the properties and, and you know, we, we optioned them uh, or I wrote the stories and, and optioned the IP. But um, I see. But there, there, there is an opportunity to be involved in them once they go from development to production. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that happens. Like as a writer or as a consultant or consultant writer or? Um, different for different projects. Right. But, but, you know, anything from uh, both of those things. Right. The, yeah, so I'm really hoping that that, that happens. Um, I'm really excited about those prospects, but I haven't been sitting around waiting for that. Uh, I've written another novel since Scorpion, um, and that is, I really kind of just finished it hmm. over the last week. Um, I'm kind of, you know, the first draft. I don't know when something's finished. I don't really know when to say. I don't, I don't know if it's finished, but it is what it is. Right. <laughs> And, uh, and so that, you know, that's really going to be the next focus is to, um, is to get that out there and, um, and then, you know, see what happens with, uh, with TV and with movies and stuff like that. Um, I think it's all super exciting. And I've even thought about writing Mm -hmm. some screenplays myself. So, um, which I've never done before. I've only, only written novels and stories, but, uh, 
that's you know you asked before asked me before whether I watch TV and I do I love I love TV I love um, all of the options that we have now um, just such creative such fantastic shows and and I love what uh, you know I'm watching Squid Game now which I'm which everybody is I guess but um, you know I love the fact that we have you know the the thing that I always want in a TV show or a movie is I just want to see something I've never seen before yeah right um, and you know. Uh, so much of Hollywood is what you've seen before um, just repackaged and you're supposed to sort of not recognize it. Uh, in fact, I have this sort of um, this sort of saying that like Hollywood's looking for something they've never seen before, as long as it looks exactly like everything else. Yeah. As long as it sold well the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the needle that you're trying to thread, which is frustrating. Yeah. But now we, we have all of these different outlets and we can see shows like, you know, like, like Ted Lasso, which is, just something I've never seen before. I've just, I've never seen a comedy that's not based on misery yeah. and dysfunction, <laughs> you know, that's based on sort of optimism and, and, and you know, mutual support and community. Wow. That what a fantastic way, um, you know, to, um, to make people laugh or, you know, squid game, which, you know, another way to do this is to like, well, what if we just don't develop these things in the United States? Like let's, you know, let's, let's let these things um, be developed for other, other, um, you know, instead of exporting all of our culture to other countries, what if we start importing more of that culture? We've done it with anime. We've done it yeah. in various ways, but shows like Dark on Netflix or um, or Squid Game, you know, they're, just, they're fantastic shows, and I love I, I love all of that um, creativity. So that's something that I would love to be involved with right. at some point. Uh, I I really do appreciate you talking to me today. I you know, you were on my radar long ago, I still remember Brandon Hall saying, like talking about one of your books and going, you're one of the few true polymaths that he knew. <laughs> and I, and I had to go look it up. Like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and so like, I, I don't know why it took me so long to actually buy one of your novels. And it's not, it's, it's really, um, it's just cause I, I don't like reading books on my phone. I need to physically hold a book. And after I read it, I give them away yeah. because I, I feel that that's the best mm -hmm. indicator of a solid piece of writing. Um, so that's me saying like, sorry, I didn't buy one of your books earlier. I really am enjoying Scorpion. I really, I just, uh, good, good. I, I'll have to get more of them. I, I do have this horrible habit of just handing them away because of what happens is, and I don't know if you're like this with books. Um, I get in the habit of, if I really like a book, I'll read it over the years. I'll read it three or four times going like, Oh yeah, this book, like yeah. earth is a good example of that. I enjoyed earth up until the last, you know, bit. And I, the last time I read it, I actually stopped it because I knew the ending and I'm like, I'm not reading this because it's so dumb. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so like, I feel bad because the, the rest of that book to me was great. Total intrigue, lots of, lots of um, world based stuff. And anyways. Yeah. Well, you got you got to give people like I, I actually I am a David Brin fan. Um, oh, okay, and um, you know, but but when you read people like him, um, you know, one thing I really respect about uh, people who are authors who are writing uh, that far out um, and who are who are um, creating such new technology is that you know, in retrospect, you know, like they're bound to get a lot of things wrong and. 
you know, um, which is why I, you know, I do science fiction very differently. Yeah. Right. Than, than someone like a, like David, David Brin, for instance, right. You know, like I'm always, as we discussed earlier, looking at five minutes in the future and, you know, I want everything to sort of feel relatable and, and connected and, and all that. Um, and I, and I feel like um, the reason I do that is because I, um, I use science fiction to create technology. I use science fiction to create situations where people can be challenged uh, in ways they couldn't otherwise be challenged and learn things about themselves right. in ways that they, they couldn't otherwise learn things. Um, that's what's interesting to me about science fiction and technology. But people like David Brenner, uh, many, many other authors who we could you know, just sit here and enumerate, you know, they're doing different things. Uh, they're, they're, some of them are futurists. Some of them are predicting the future. Some of them are, you know, um, I don't tend to do that, right? Like, um, I, I'm not interested in being a futurist. I'm not interested in predicting the future. Uh, I'm interested in telling good stories about characters and, and um, using technology to help those characters learn things about themselves and to go through a transformative process. Mm. That's, that's what I really love. Um, and, uh, and, and also, as I said before, like I'm sort of interested in the achievable right. uh, in terms of like the time horizon of, of technology. Uh, now that doesn't mean I won't, you know, sometimes sneak things in that just make no sense or that might be, you know, just for fun or whatever it is. But, um, but that's, you know, writers like, like, um, I have a lot of respect for them because they're also kind of really, you know, going out on a limb where you read them 10 years, uh, or 15 or 20 years later, and the books might seem ridiculous. Um, but you know, when you, if you can, if you can, you know, read them in the context in which they were written and, and you can say like, wow, that's actually amazing that they got these things right or that they, you know, that they did anticipate something like Google Glass or they anticipated the internet or, you know, I find that to be really, uh, yeah. really fascinating. Christian, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope it didn't go off in the weeds too much, no. but uh, it's, it's fun to talk technology and, and, and technology history and all that stuff. This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content in this episode is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Questions or comments can be emailed to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Music for the podcast is provided by Not Of. Find Not Of at notof.bandcamp.com. Opening and closing voiceover provided by jeffwright.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, a like in whatever platform you use goes a long way to helping the podcast get noticed. Thanks for listening and keep creating. It was you.